This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Security controls fail everywhere. They fail constantly, and worst of all, they fail silently. That's why you need Attack IQ, the leading automated insights platform to continually validate your defenses. Better insights, better decisions, and real security outcomes. Get it all with Attack IQ. Plus, check out the Attack IQ Academy for free cybersecurity training featuring the good people here at Hacker Valley Studio. Register today at academy.attackiq.com and let them know Hacker Valley Studio sent you. What's going on, everyone? And welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio podcast. Our family is growing, our production is growing, and we've introduced a new podcast, the Cyber Ranch podcast hosted by Alan Alford. In this episode, we interview Alan. We learn more about his journey in cybersecurity and becoming a CISO at multiple companies. We also learn a little bit more about Alan's philosophy into learning. We had a lot of fun recording this episode. Be sure to check out his Cyber Ranch podcast and let's jump right into this episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. And it feels great to be in the studio today because Chris and I are joined by Alan Alford, a member of the Hacker Valley family. And Alan recently launched a new show called the Cyber Ranch Podcast. Besides joining forces with us at the Hacker Valley, Alan is also a habitual CISO. He's been a CISO many times over and has a wealth of knowledge in cybersecurity in general. Alan, my brother, it's always a pleasure to speak to you and welcome to the show. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. Alan, Alan, Alan. This episode has been a long time coming, and I had no idea that this is how we were going to bring in your addition to the family. And But I'm beyond excited to have you on the show today. For the folks that don't know who you are just yet, would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Let's see here. So I've been a CISO four times over. I've worked in telecommunications. I've worked in education. I've actually been a CISO at a, a security company that made security products. I've been in the game, cybersecurity game, probably 20-something years now. And I got a strong background in product security as well. I actually did a lot of product before I did IT security. Outstanding. So we got to go into to your background just a little bit. You, We all belong to this group called Tinkerers. And usually when someone is considered a tinkerer, it usually starts at a really young age. Did that begin when you were a young kid? And, and what was that story behind that? I was the kid that took apart the alarm clock when I was very young. <laughs> and uh, that was before I learned the process of laying out the layers and laying out the screws for the layers and being organized about it. So of course, I couldn't put the thing back together. But uh, but I was that kid. I used to get in trouble with my folks all the time for investigating things to a degree that might have actually harmed or disrupted them. And that evolved uh, over time when I was in middle school. My dad was, uh, I should start with my father's career because I'm actually second gen InfoSec, believe it or not. My dad was a systems operator, systems administrator, whatever they call it back in the mainframe era, who specialized in security. That was actually his jam. And when we brought the first IBM PC into the house when I was in middle school, he was using it 
at night to log into his mainframe and perform actual work. And of course, I was allowed to play on it under supervision at first until he got to trusting I wasn't going to screw things up royally. And soon I got to the point where I was also dialing into things that weren't necessarily uh, things I was supposed to be dialing into. Mm. Uh, I had a group of friends. We had between us like a TI-99 and a TRS-80 and an IBM PC and an Apple IIe. And we had something from the whole world of personal computing, all these new devices that had popped up from all these companies. And so we used to not only do a whole lot of hacking and war dialing and everything else we did, but we also were constantly porting games and writing games back and forth between the systems. I had found some old books at a garage sale from the PDP-8 and PDP-11 era and would literally write my own games and then learn how to port them from one OS to the other. Yeah, I started very young. One thing that's interesting about your background and very similar to mine, I graduated with a degree in humanities and you also got a degree in liberal arts. So where does the art and love of humanity and how do you intertwine that with technology? I always had a liberal arts bent, even as far back as high school. I was in, obviously, I was in public school and being the math and science sort of person that I am, I obviously had a lot of interest in pursuits there as well as formal education. The school that I went to very much treated the smart kids as STEM kids. In other words, there was a lot to offer if you were an honors level kid for physics, for chemistry, for bio, for calculus, all these different things. But there wasn't so much in the liberal arts space at all. You took your standard honors English class and you took your standard honors government or history, and that was pretty much it. And so I went out of my way and signed up for a class called creative writing. And this was my junior year. And it was a class that wasn't an honors class. And a lot of the counselors tried to steer me away from it, worried about impact to GPA, et cetera. And I told them, I don't care. I want to go do this. And I found that I love that experience so much that senior year, I actually worked with the teacher and got a creative writing two class created just for me. It was literally a one-on-one, just me and the teacher from creative writing working together on projects and, and doing things senior year. So I loved it so much that I even pursued it against the tide of all these STEM programs. I was a member of JETS, the Junior Engineering Technical Society, and did all those things as well. But the, the passion for the liberal arts struck me early. I think storytelling was a big component of what drew me to it. The idea that just novels, just reading novels in, in regular English class really got me inspired to not just consume stories, but to start learning the art and, and the craft of telling stories myself. And so that's where the, the creative writing started. And so by the time college hit, I already had a very long and strong computer history under my belt because I'd started when I was so young. And I didn't feel like I wanted to go get a computer science degree in school because it, it just seemed like a vocational decision. You know what I'm saying? Like I could, you go to mechanic school to learn how to be a mechanic. You go get a computer science degree to learn how to do computer science. Well, I already knew computer science, right? I already knew how to do these things with the computer that I wanted to do. And so I didn't want to waste my education, so to speak, on something as vocational as that on a subject I already knew about. And so I did a deep dive into the liberal arts and just decided I was going to pursue that to its hilt. And I signed up for an honors humanities program, philosophy. I did a lot of the soft sciences, psychology, sociology. I did political science, ran the full gamut of everything in the soft sciences and liberal arts. And all the while was working my way, paying my way through school, doing the computer jobs. So I never left the computing. It stayed with me, but it was how I was earning my money to fund my passion, which was on the liberal arts side and getting the education. And so as a result, I stayed an undergraduate for a long time. I'm not even going to tell you how many years I was an undergraduate, <laughs> just because I, I just kept going to learn. I didn't care. I wasn't even pursuing a degree necessarily. I just wanted to learn more. And I had the money and I had the career to fund it. And I just kept going and kept learning. That's the way to go. And that's called being a student of the game. Like you really just pursued the wealth of knowledge. You pursued understanding. And I really like that path. For me, I went the opposite direction 
And it was great in the beginning because I was able to directly apply the things that I learned in undergrad to my professional career. But I was lacking all of those auxiliary skills that really make cybersecurity professionals great. So when you look at liberal arts, you think literature, philosophy, math, social and physical sciences. And really, for me, when I got started in cybersecurity, it was just the cybersecurity aspects. I couldn't even really code at that point because the cybersecurity degrees, for the most part, they have hints and touches of code. I really like that the fact that you really honed in your craft for liberal arts in the beginning while developing your computer science skills. But it strikes me that you were really focused and you had to do a lot of reading and stay concentrated. What was your techniques and practices for learning so rapidly and just throughout a long stint of education and through your career? Early on, with the focus on the English literature specifically, I had to develop a skill and that skill was how to ingest a lot of written material very quickly, ingest it meaningfully, and then be able to turn around and output something meaningful about said material. When I was at my peak in the Honors Humanities program at TCU and and doing, you know, English Lit and all kinds of other things as well, there were times that I was reading as many as 500, 600 pages a night Mm. just based on how many classes I was signed up for and everything was honors and I just was dogpiling. In the early days, I went to way too many classes at once. And so I had to learn quickly how to read and how to ingest. That skill alone has served me well pretty much every facet of my life. I can sit down with a book, be it a technical book, be it a novel, be it whatever, I'm a very fast reader and I can onboard information quickly. So I think that was probably one of the one of the critical bits was mastering that skill early on. And then as to the rest of it, the reason I kept gravitating more around English Lit than any of the rest of it is because I started to see in studying all these fields at the same time. And of course, I was continuing to pursue my own computer education on my own outside of school. I was learning databasing and got deeper into programming and became a network engineer and all this stuff. And I began to realize that every discipline that I took on, be it an educational and academic exercise or a real world exercise with computing, I started to realize that every one of these had something in common. And what was in common was there was a sort of a, for lack of a better term, a vocabulary and a grammar. And what I mean by that is there was a structure by which things operated that was a consistent set of rules that you were either inside the bounds or out of the bounds. And if you were out of the bounds, it wasn't working right. And there was a series of terminology and and knowledge concepts and objects of knowledge that you had to gather and onboard, and that would be the vocabulary equivalent. And with that model in mind, I began approaching everything in the world, um, looking to see with a new discipline, what's the grammar here? What are the rules that drive it? And what's the vocabulary? What are the objects and terms that I need to know to stay in the bounds of that grammar and be successful with it? And that model, I've never left much further along my career now. And I still think of things in terms of grammar and vocabulary. I'm, I'm feeling like a detective right now. I think you're leaving a lot of clues all over the place. And one of the kind of first points that we were speaking about is meaningfully digesting and retaining and being able to recall this information that you read or that you learn. And for me, I I love mnemonics. I love using acronyms to understand things like the three R's of learning or retaining information. There's recording, then there's retaining, and then there's recalling. What was your method for kind of those three steps, recording information, recalling it, and retaining it? I don't know that I've ever had a specific method, but I will say this. There's a conscious reading voice and there's a non-conscious reading voice for me. And what I mean by that is when I'm first engaging some written word, like I'm, I'm reading, uh, 
a book right now on measuring cybersecurity risk. And I was sitting down this morning. When I first wake up and I first start turning pages, as the words are entering my brain, I literally hear a voice in my head echoing these words. As I read the word, the dog ran over the lazy fox or whatever it is, I'm, I'm hearing those words in my head. And at some point, very quickly, I shoot past that to a point where the words are literally going straight into my brain and I'm no longer hearing an inner voice reading those words. And I don't know what that phenomenon is. It's a known psychological phenomenon. I don't know what that is or how that works, but I know that I get there pretty quickly, usually within a few pages. And once I've hit that level, it just goes in. And I don't know how else to describe it. That phenomena that you're experiencing is actually called flow. Because once you get to flow, it's almost like things just happen automatically. And that's happened to me quite a few times. I read constantly. When I was a little kid, reading Goosebump books by Arl Stein. And it would get a point where I wasn't even reading the words anymore. It was almost like a mental movie that was playing in my head and it would just go in automatically. And that's really probably one of the first times I felt flow from a learning standpoint or a reading standpoint. So I, I think that's what you're experiencing. Do you think that's what it is? That sounds exactly like what it is. And so how did you think, how do you think you got to that point? Do you think you, you just pushed yourself further and further every day and to the point where you're like, all right, I, I need to do this. I'm so actively practicing reading that I need to just get a little bit better. I need to be able to ingest this information a little bit faster. Do you think that's what did it or do you think it was something else? I think it was just sheer repetition, honestly. I've been a voracious reader since I was a little bitty kid. Elementary school, my mom used to take us to the public library every weekend, and I would get a stack of books. And by the next weekend, I had read that entire stack of books and was getting a whole new stack of books. I was that voracious a reader, even at a very young age. My mom was a school teacher, and she was a big, she had a big belief that television should be limited highly. The idea that you come home from school, turn on the TV and watch it and eat dinner and go back to watching TV, like that was not allowed. We got, I think, like an hour of TV a week. And so my form of entertainment, my principal form of entertainment was reading from a very early age. And I think it was just the sheer throwing myself at it nonstop that I got to that point where that flow would occur. And what's curious is that you go from consuming information via reading, but then you're putting out information via speaking, via video. How, how did that translation happen? When did you start feeling like you had to produce something for, for people to consume? Working in school, starting with creative writing in high school, that's exactly what you're doing. You're now the one creating the material someone else is going to read. And I was forced to begin doing the things that I valued as a reader. And I was forced to start paying attention to reading in a different way. It was no longer just about enjoying the experience or onboarding the information. It became about analyzing how it was being done. What tricks are working here? What techniques are working here? Why did that passage appeal to me? Why did that one invoke an emotion and this one did not? Why did this one cause me to read so much faster because I was just so excited to turn the page and find out what was happening next? So I had to begin deconstructing what was working in my consumption to start fine-tuning my output. And obviously in high school, mediocre work at best, but I continued to pursue that through college and I got to be a fairly gifted writer. And at some point in college, I was approached by a friend who had a radio show on the college radio station, the actual KTCU radio station that played all over the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I was invited to do a show, to create my own show and become a DJ and have a show. 
I lucked into the fact that another DJ had just gotten fired basically for cussing on the air. And I got the Saturday 10 to midnight slot. I got the prime slot for the entire week to be a DJ cranking music out on the FM airwaves. <laughs> and so my first time on a mic was terrifying. I was here. I was somebody who was used to creative output, but it was always in the written form. And suddenly I'm on a microphone with God only knows how many people listening to me uh, talking about music I loved. And the good news is I was a rabid uh, fan of music. I had a massive music collection at the time, and I was able to mine my own collection and start doing some of the things that I did in the liberal arts and the humanities, which was deconstructing threads. And by that, I would take a popular and modern song that everybody was listening to at the time, and I would play it. And then I would talk about how it was influenced by this song that came before, and I would play that song, which in turn was influenced by this song that came before. And I would work these threads of music through each show, starting with something people were familiar with and going really far back in some cases. I remember one show, we ended up staying with one thread the entire show, and I think I made it all the way back to the 1930s, um, saying this song kind of was the the influence on this song to this song to this song to the one today. Wow. And so doing that on the air, after a while, I, I just became oblivious to the fact that it was on the air. The fact that a microphone was in my face was less concerned than the fact that I'd spent all week thinking about what that week's thread was going to be and what music I was going to explore with people. And I just was so excited to be sharing that that I forgot there was a microphone. Well, besides being a, a great storyteller, a great writer, a great leader in cybersecurity. One of the things that I've really recognized about you is your networking skills. Like you're always putting yourself out there. You're always finding yourselves in these situations. And that's really how we got linked up in security tinkerers is we both were networking and putting ourselves out there. How did that begin for you? Were you at ever at any point timid to, to begin networking? And what has networking been like for you today? I was never timid, but I was oblivious. And by that, my mother was an orphan. Uh, she had lost both of her parents when she was young. My father had lost his father when he was young as well. So I only had one of the four grandparents around just the entire time I was a kid. I had one grandparent. And she was burdened with raising not just the kids she had with my dad's dad, but, but the kids that he had from his previous marriage where she had died. So suddenly she's raising four children, two of whom aren't even her kids. She had a really tough time of it. And, and the net result was I didn't gain from family a lot of those things a lot of people gain. I didn't get these things passed down. Like in Texas, it's a pretty standing tradition for a young man to at some point be presented, this was your grandfather's deer rifle or this was your grandfather's shotgun. I had nothing like that. There were no artifacts passed down. But similarly, there was no institutional connections passed down. In other words, I had friends that I went to college with who right out of college got great jobs. And why did they get great jobs? Because dad had a friend who was in the whatever business and his grandfather had always owned that business and all these stories of people being successful in their careers and having connections and having doors open for them because of inherited connections. I grew up without any of those inherited connections. And so right about the time college ended is when I started to notice this lack that I hadn't even perceived as a lack. I saw everyone else taking advantage of all these familial connections. And I had parents who, who didn't have that themselves and so didn't even know to pass it on or, or make it a thing. So it wasn't just that I had nothing direct from grandparents. My parents growing up without parents of their own, they didn't get that connection either. So they didn't even know that there was something missing to pass on in the first place. And so I literally just had nothing. Like My first job was gotten by me knocking on doors, literally. My second job was gotten by me going downtown every day, going into skyscrapers with copies of my resume, riding the elevator, getting off at anything that looked like it might be a law firm, handing them my resume and saying, I want to be an assistant at a law firm. 
And doing this for weeks and weeks, I must have slung 200, 300 resumes around downtown Houston before I finally got a job. It paid off. I had friends who just walked straight into the same thing. So not having that early on in life caused me later in life to realize that I needed to build that for myself. And so I became voracious about networking. It became a very conscious, very active process for me, making connections, establishing relationships, getting to a point where if one day I might need to say, hey, I need a job, there would be people there to receive that message and hopefully help me with it. And at the same time, as I was progressing through it, I was looking back at young Alan and how he was thrashing around with none of this. And I began turning around and becoming that for the younger generation coming up. And so just as much as I'm networking for myself and whatever benefits may be there for me down the road, I'm turning around and networking for the younger crowd to make sure they're getting the benefits that I never had. What about today? What does networking do for your career today? I'm sure it's quite a bit, but I'm sure there's someone listening that's not really capitalizing on the opportunities that we have today with LinkedIn, Twitter, social media, podcasting. How, what is your networking tactics today? And, and what would you recommend kind of people to look at when they are thinking of networking? So for me at this stage in my career, the value is much more about rapid information exchange than it is about anything else. I can help someone solve a problem quickly based on we're connected. And like you said, LinkedIn, Slack, whatever the forum might be, I can shoot a question out to the universe and get back answers quickly. I can see someone else's question come in and answer it quickly. Job recommendations and referrals, which I think at the core of it all, when people talk about professional networking, I really think that's most of what it's about is having those connections and being able to get a good and better job down the road. At this point, I think that's a given with how much networking I do. Every job I've gotten in the last quite some time now has been a result of networking. So for me, the value is more in the idea exchange, in honing my craft and helping others hone their craft, two-way idea exchange, conversations that cause me to think about the cyber and infosec worlds in new ways. That to me is probably the principal value. For those who read me on LinkedIn, everyone knows I've got a very conversational style in the sense that I'm trying to cause conversation. And I will ask a lot of questions more than I will make a lot of statements. And what I love to see is when some question I posed out to the LinkedIn universe, I'll wake up the next morning and find 100 comments on it. And it's not just people responding to me, it's people responding to each other. There's a full on legitimate community dialogue taking place because of the questions I shot out there. And that to me is the most fulfilling and most rewarding part of networking is when all of us have, as a community can gather around some artifact of networking that was thrown out there and all of us can grow and better ourselves from it. Much like you, I came from a place where I wasn't handed down a lot. And the community that I have today is something that Ron and I have had to spend the last two years building. I, I wasn't welcome with open arms into the cybersecurity community. And so we had to build something ourselves. And we've done pretty well with that. However, there is many people that are like, wow, that's incredible. You guys are inspiring. There are also people that look at us and they have this preconceived notion of why we're networking or have this ulterior motive that might not be positive. What's one thing that you feel like people misunderstand about you? And what would you say to correct that mentality? Oh, that's a great question. So, I think you have to be very careful. And I was just having this conversation with another friend, another tinkerer, in fact, yesterday morning. It is easy when you start focusing on the output side and not just the input side. You're no longer reading the novels. You're actually doing creative writing, metaphorically speaking here. As soon as you make that decision to go to the output side, there are some traps you can fall into. And some of those traps are ego. 
Some of those traps are arrogance. Some of those traps are starting to believe yourself to be some kind of expert you're not. And I think that a lot of folks who aren't focused on the output side, it's very easy to look at folks that are and see them through one of those filters, through one of those lenses. It's easy to see ego or, or arrogance or assumptions of expertise. And this is part of why with my process, I, I very much focus more on questions than answers. My podcast, my show, what I love to do is interview other people and hear about their expertise. On LinkedIn, I pose questions to the community, I, I, far more than I pose statements. And it's part of my methodology to make sure that I'm staying in check, that I'm not starting to fall for some belief that I'm all that when I know I'm not. I've been in cyber for 20 plus years now, and I've obviously gained some real skills. I obviously have some knowledge and some wisdom that can be passed down. That by no means indicates that I've somehow solved it all and done it all. Every job I take, every career move I take is a choice to learn something new. Years ago, I perfected what I called the 70-30 rule with career moves. And, and that is get a job that is going to pay you well because 70% of that job is something you're already good at. But always take a job where the other 30% is something you're not good at because you're there to learn and grow. And the next job, your 70% is now an actual physically larger number because you've mastered something else and you move on and you move on and you move on. And here I am at this stage in my career still very much doing that. I think by the time this show drops, I will have already started. We're recording the day before my new job and I'm about to become a CTO at a uh, security startup. It'll be my first ever CTO gig. I'm simultaneously thrilled and terrified. I'm there because of the expertise I have, because of my networking, my skills, my background, my connections, all the reasons. That's the 70% of all the things I've done up to this point in my career. But that remaining 30% is the part I don't know, that I want to know, that I want to get good at. And I'm thrilled at the opportunity to dive into something that I'm sure I'm going to suck at first, but I'm dead set on getting really good at it. That's awesome. And I'm excited for you to embark on this new journey of being a CTO. I know that you've been a CISO quite a bit and for many years. What do you think are going to be some of those parallels that you can really double down on? What are some of the 70% of qualities that you feel like you already have for this opportunity? And what's the 30% you're looking forward to getting? So strangely enough, we're all the way back to my conversation about when I first took on creative writing. As a CISO, I have been a reader. I've been a consumer of security companies, technologies and products and, and services. And I've, I've been reading all this time. And now all of a sudden as a CTO, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be the author. And so I'm going to have to do the exact same thing I did back then. I'm going to have to start deconstructing what I've always enjoyed and what I found valuable and useful why did this particular tool work for me? Why didn't this one? What kinds of technology choices and products were easy for me to work with and what ones weren't? I basically got to take my entire expertise set that I've built as a consumer and turn around and become a producer. And so that's what I'm going to be leveraging and leaning on the most. And I'm already educating myself. I've spent a couple of weeks here in between jobs, reading a whole lot of books, doing a lot of research online getting myself ready. I mentioned earlier, I'm reading a book on uh, how to measure anything in cybersecurity risk right now. And I've got a, a stack of other books queued up. I'm going to be nonstop ingesting and onboarding new information and uh, working as much as possible to translate all the skills I had as a consumer of security products to make myself the best possible producer of security products that I can be. So we've known you for over a year at this point. And 
when Ron and I started the podcast, we never thought about expanding the business. We never thought about bringing on additional podcasters or helping them launch shows. But when the opportunity came up to work with you, for us, it was a complete no-brainer. We are beyond proud to have you as a part of our family. We consider you a friend. I consider you, we consider you a brother. What is the impetus of you having your, your own show with your own voice and being able to talk to the people that you want to talk us, uh, talk to us a little bit about where that motivation came from and what are you looking to do with the show? So my first podcasting voyage, as you guys know, was with a partner who brought me in as the, I guess he was the director and I was the talent is probably the, the way to put it. He's a marketing and producer type fellow who got to specializing in the infosec field, but is certainly not a practitioner. He needed an expert voice on the show and tapped me as a CISO with, with something of some kind of reputation anyway, to be on the show and to be that voice. And it was thrilling. I, I did it for two years and I started to get curious. It was just like when I ran my FM radio show, I had a friend who uh, came with me who was my engineer. All I had to do was be the talent on the microphone. The actual sliding of the levers and knobs and everything else was my friend Mark. And it's the same thing with the podcast that reached a certain point where I was like, I want to learn more about this. I, I had Mark teaching me constantly what he was doing and why and how and what the physics were of being a real FM DJ as opposed to just a guy yakking in a microphone. And I think for the podcast, there's a lot of those same impulses. Uh, a lot of it was just the technical challenge. We talked about being tinkerers and taking apart clocks when we were kids. Some of it is that. I've got all kinds of new gear and I'm learning audio software and I'm absolutely thrilled to be doing all this production stuff and tinkering that way. And a lot of it was the creative control. I wanted to get to a point where the show was fully and completely mine. I didn't want to be bound by anybody else's rules as to what guest I might want to bring on or what topics I might want to talk about. I wanted that full control. I have a wealth of friends who come from all nooks and crannies of the cyber world, many of whom happen to be vendors, just like I'm about to become a vendor here starting tomorrow. And on the old show, we were very cautious about bringing vendors on because we didn't want shows to be commercials, uh, unpaid for commercials, so to speak. But with my group of friends, I'm having frank and honest conversations about, hey, you can't be all vendory and you can't pitch your stuff, but you're an expert in this one area. I would love to have you on the show to talk about this area and share your knowledge with my guests. So I'm able to do that now. I've got a lot more friends on the show than I was able to do on the last show. And I'm finding folks to talk to that can share incredible amounts of wisdom and wealths of information. And I couldn't be more thrilled. There's someone that's listening to this episode right now, and they feel a bit like an imposter because they relate so much more to the art side, the humanities side of life, but they're in a very technological field. What is a piece of advice that you would give to them to be able to enable them to be their best self when they get to the workspace? Oh, never neglect the soft skills. I don't care how technical your role is. Years and years ago, when I was an individual contributor, I had a manager that I reported to who just was not very good at being an IT manager in terms of the communications with the company. He was great at his job. He had all the technical chops. He was personally and directly in charge of, of whole swaths of our tech stack. But when it came to communicating with the business, I recognized early, oh, this guy's just not that good at that. And I gently persuaded him and let him make me the guy to do that. I became the voice. And our communications with the company improved. Our posture as a team and our status and stature with the company improved simply because we improved our communications. We weren't doing the work any differently at all. It was just how we were communicating the work became different. And as a result of that, they eventually uh, made me the manager. And I didn't plan on that. I certainly wasn't doing that because I wanted to be a manager, but that was the, the net result. So the bottom line is don't be afraid to focus on the soft skills. Leverage what you've learned from liberal arts. 
liberal arts teaches you how to learn. And that's a skill that applies everywhere. It teaches you how to communicate. And that's a skill that applies everywhere. And I can guarantee you as a CISO that the higher I've climbed up the ladder from individual contributor all the way up to CISO now and CTO now, the soft skills become more and more important the higher you climb up that ladder. Outstanding, Alan. This was a masterclass for the learning leader. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you, the Cyber Ranch podcast, what are the best ways that people can do that? All right. So on LinkedIn, I'm Alan Alford, A-L-L-A-N-A-L-F-O-R-D. I think I'm the only one with that spelling of that name. So hit me up there. Feel free to send me a connection request. And the podcast is, of course, hosted at HackerValley.com. So check out the show there. And of course, any place that good podcasts are distributed. Awesome, Alan. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. We'll be sure to drop all of those in the show notes and be sure to visit HackerValley.com forward slash Cyber Ranch to check out Alan's new podcast. And we'll see everyone next time. If you enjoy our content, it would mean so much to us if you shared this episode on social media, told a friend or wrote us a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform. 